0: The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. God, by hearing from His Word. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to the Gospel of John, to John chapter thirteen. As I am preparing for the book of Leviticus, I am just kind of filling that time in in between having finished Galatians and preparing for. Leviticus by uh, looking at uh, John 13 to give us some encouragement in the meantime. This is uh, sermons I've done in the past, so this is things that I am revisiting, but it's such an encouraging look into the work of our Savior, to who our Savior is and His love for us as sinners. Our passage is John 13, verses 6 through 11. Let's not give our attention as God speaks to us in his holy and inspired word. John 13, verses 6 through 11. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew, who was to betray him, that is why he said, not all of you are clean. This concludes the reading of God's word. May God now be pleased to add his blessing to it. If you were asked this question, and you were to take a guess, what is the number one sin that Christians struggle with? How would you answer? Maybe it's sexual sin, which is certainly a huge issue in our culture. Marital infidelity has sadly become a common phenomenon in our day. The divorce rate among professing believers is about the same as unbelievers. Pornography use is at an all-time high, with one survey indicating two out of three professing Christian men looking at reporting having looked at pornography uh, perhaps the top sin you would say is anger now, this is not as scandalous of a sin but it certainly is a destructive one and sadly this happens in professing christians ho- christian homes more than it should and perhaps many of us know christians who have gotten into heated debates over theological or political discussions. Maybe you have something else in mind that you would see as a top sin that Christians struggle with. Now, as bad and as common as these sins are, our passage actually portrays a sin that is very common, but is perhaps not on your radar screen. And this is the sin of refusing to receive Christ's love and grace. Here in our passage, Peter refuses to let Christ serve him with his humble and cleansing love. This may seem like a noble, humble action of Peter. Oh, no, no, don't want to take too much. But refusing Christ's ongoing love and cleansing grace is actually a sin of pride and unbelief. And it is met with a strong warning from Christ that if he does not wash him, then he has no participation with him. And this is what our passage is warning us about today. And so we're going to look at two biblical examples that show us the importance of receiving Christ's cleansing love. Two biblical examples that show us the importance of receiving Christ's cleansing love. First, hope you can remember this, Peter. Second, Judas. Do I need to repeat that? So, first, Peter, an example of receiving Christ's cleansing love, why we need to, beginning in verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, Do you wash my feet? Now, remember from last time how big of a deal it was to wash somebody's feet. This was only reserved for Gentile slaves. Not even a Jewish slave can do this. But here we have Christ, the Lord and Teacher, doing the work of a Gentile slave. This task was not even worthy of a Jewish slave, let alone the Jewish Messiah. And so understandably, Peter responds with shock and emphatically in the Greek, Do you wash my feet? But Jesus responds in verse 7, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. So rather than explain to Peter everything now, Jesus tells him, Let me do this. And you will understand later. In other words, Jesus is implicitly calling Peter to trust him and let him do his work. And this is a good application point. We may not understand why the Lord is doing something. But that doesn't mean we should question him, doubt him or not follow him until we first understand. What the Lord is telling Peter here to do is trust first. The understanding will come later. And so we should follow Christ in this way. Trusting Him. Doing what He says, even though we may not understand at the time. Peter will later understand that what Christ is doing is a picture of a greater work that He would do to cleanse Peter, not feet, but soul from his sins. This laying aside his garments... And dressing to serve is a picture of Christ laying aside his heavenly garments, as it were, and putting on our own humanity in order to serve us by giving himself up for our sins that we may live. However, Peter doesn't fully understand this now, as evidenced by his response in verse 8. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. So instead of listening to his Lord and simply trusting him, instead of relying on his own understanding about how he thinks things should go, he rebukes his Lord and strongly pushes back against him. Peter's statement is a, is emphatic in the Greek. Literally from the Greek, it's no, no, never will you wash my feet until forever. So Peter is pretty adamant that Jesus will never wash his feet. But the Lord responds, the end of verse 8, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now this is a solemn and shocking warning. When Christ tells Peter that he will have no share with him, he is using a Greek word for inheritance. Jesus is saying that if he does not wash him, Peter will have no inheritance with Christ. He will not be a co-heir with Christ. In other words, Peter will not be going to heaven to be with Christ. Now this may sound shocking and confusing at first. If I don't wash your feet, you don't go to heaven? Until we realize that this foot washing is not a mere physical cleansing but is symbolic of a deeper spiritual cleansing. It is not the physical washing from Christ's physical hands with physical water on our physical body that washes away sins. Rather, it's Christ's greater humiliating act of which this foot washing points of Christ shedding His own blood to cleanse our souls from our sin. And so Christ's point is not if I don't remove dirt from your Feet, I'll disown you, but rather if you in your heart do not receive my humiliating act of love in cleansing you, then you cannot be saved. And this is why Jesus tells Peter, unless I wash, notice you, verse 8, unless I wash you, not his feet, but you, you have no share with me. If Peter's pride prevents him from receiving Christ's humiliating act of love, of physically washing physical dirt from his feet, then how much more Christ's greater act of humiliating love in washing Peter's soul from the stain of sin. Because as shocking and as humbling as it is to have the Lord humiliate himself to remove dirt, From his feet, it is much more shocking and humbling to have the Lord humiliate himself by giving himself up naked on a cross in order to remove the uncleanness of our sin. And from this story, we see a major barrier to being saved. And it's not our uncleanness, but rather our refusal to be cleansed. Notice the issue is not Peter trying to get the Lord to cleanse him and the Lord refusing. No, get away from me, you filthy, rotten animal. Rather, it was Jesus who initiated this cleansing love and Peter was the one stubbornly refusing it. We often think that we're too dirty to be cleansed, that Christ wants nothing to do us. Why would he want to clean somebody like me? But in fact, it's the opposite way around. Christ is more willing and more able to cleanse than we are to receive it. Besides that, we are often very proud and self-reliant in clinging to our own works rather than Christ as a covering for our sin. It's very humbling to have to admit that we can't do something it's humbling to admit that we can't do anything about our sin but must receive cleansing as a free gift that came at such a humiliating act as Christ giving himself up for us, taking the wrath that we deserve. We feel guilty when we sin, and our natural tendency is to say, What do I need to do to fix it? Give me some directives. Let me receive some principles so that I can fix it rather than. One, having to humbly admit, I failed. And two, that I can't do anything about it. That it must be Christ giving himself up in such a humiliating way of being hung naked on a cross, bleeding and dying. That is the only remedy for my sin. Have you ever noticed in the Bible what the stumbling block is? The stumbling block is not the law. The stumbling block is the gospel. It is not the demand for one to perform good works, but the need to trust in Christ's work alone that's the offensive stumbling block. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 that the cross, not the law, is the stumbling block and is foolishness to those who are perishing. In their pride and self-righteousness, the Jews were zealously pursuing obedience to the law. Paul talks about this in Romans 9 and 10, that they have a zeal for God in pursuing righteousness, but not according to knowledge, because they failed to believe that Christ Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. And this is a huge problem in our day. This is a huge problem in conservative Christian churches, conservative Baptists and non-denominational churches in America today. Believers struggle with receiving Christ's ongoing cleansing love and look rather to the law. What we find in American conservative churches today was called liberalism a hundred years ago. In 1923, the reformed Pastor and Professor of Princeton, J. Gresham Machen, wrote of this in his book, Christianity and Liberalism. So he's saying Christianity and liberalism, two different things. This is what he says about liberalism, religious liberalism. Here is found the most fundamental difference between liberalism and Christianity. Liberalism is altogether in the imperative mood. Imperative means commands laws. It's all together in the imperative mood. Liberalism appeals to man's will. Strong exhortation, get your act together. While Christianity announces first a gracious act. Now what Machin is not saying is that the law or commandments or exhortations are bad. He is not saying that. Rather, what he is saying is that liberalism reduces Christianity to only the law, commands, principles, rules to follow. How do I handle my sin? You need to do these things. Surrender more. Do this more. But Christ and Him crucified, which was the centerpiece of Paul's ministry, is cut out of the picture, or is mentioned very little. It's put in the storage closet and taken out during Christmas. It's what Michael Horton calls Christless Christianity, where we end up saying very little that the world could not hear from Dr. Phil, Dr. Laura, or Oprah. A church may have an orthodox doctrinal statement where salvation by grace apart from works is affirmed, the traditional view of marriage is upheld, and the inerrancy of the Bible is strongly affirmed. But if it is Heavy on the law and light on the gospel, then it is rooted in liberalism. The religious liberalism began over a hundred years ago as a response to science. The scientists were denying the credibility of the scriptures because of its accounts of creation and miracles. Because these things could not be scientifically proven, they were rejecting the Bible as written by some silly simpletons that just weren't enlightened enough by science. Now, the Christian community was not willing to go so far as to say that the Bible was wrong, but they tried to make a compromise in trying to find a common ground with the scientific community. They found the common ground in the morals of the Bible and said, well, you may not believe in the miracles in the Bible, But couldn't you benefit from Jesus' moral teachings? And so they ended up downplaying the gospel. Christ crucified and risen from the dead for forgiveness. Downplaying doctrine for deeds. And so they focused on Christ's example, his moral teachings, principles for living. And hence why we have the what would Jesus do movement. Now again, Christ's moral teachings and example is a good thing and must be affirmed but the problem is not with what is affirmed the problem is in what is missing christ and him crucified is the centerpiece of the apostolic ministry you can't affirm what would jesus do apart from what has jesus done If we only give a bunch of good duty without giving the good news, we end up losing Christianity and sounding no different than a Muslim. Again, Machen says, while addressing Christianity versus liberalism, he says, obedience produced by exhortation only had often been tried in the ancient world. In the Hellenistic age, there were many wandering preachers who told men how they ought to live. But such exhortation proved to be powerless. Although the ideals of cynic and stoic preachers were high, these preachers never succeeded in transforming society. But the strange thing about Christianity was that it adopted an entirely different method. It transformed the lives of men, not by appealing to the human will, but by telling a story, not by exhortation, but by the, narr- by the narration of an event where the most eloquent exhortation fails. The simple story of an event succeeds. The lives of men are transformed by a piece of news. This gospel is the power of God for salvation, which includes ongoing sanctification while the law is a guide that both leads us to Christ that we may rest in Him and then from there leads us in how we are to live in grateful obedience once we have come to Christ, we must first receive Christ's cleansing power freely and humbly instead of trying to rely on our own obedience to the law. And this is something that we do throughout our Christian life. Now here are some of the evidences of when our Christianity becomes our reliance on our rule-keeping rather than on grace-receiving. When we are rejecting Christ's cleansing love and saying, you shall never wash my feet, when we start having that attitude. First is relying on one's works righteousness for refuge as evidence in a hatred of correction. That's one indicator. Proverbs nine eight says, "Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you." Now, the scoffer doesn't openly say when you correct him, "I hate you," but he certainly doesn't love it, as Proverbs nine eight says, "Reprove a wise man, and he will love you." Instead, they are offended by it. They resent hearing anything discouraging about themselves hatred of correction though is a symptom of a deeper problem not wanting to hear that one's righteousness is not enough that it's lacking that person is not coming to grips with their own filthiness which leads them to humbly receiving Christ's cleansing love a second indicator of not receiving Christ's cleansing love is despair over one's sin or personal lack of righteousness. When I say despair, I don't mean grief or godly sorrow. That's good. Despair is when we grieve as if there was no hope. As if there was no gospel hope. As if there was no Savior to go to who will immediately receive you and cleanse you fully and freely. How can any of us despair of their sin? When Christ is available freely to any sinner who comes to Him, a person who despairs is a person who says in his heart, unless I have enough righteousness, unless I can fix it, it is hopeless. But there is no need to despair when we have a God who pardons sin Transgression and iniquity freely, who is ready to forgive, who has freely and willingly provided a fountain filled with blood by which we may wash away all our sins. Now, the other side of this is pride. Openly or secretly boasting in yourself because you think, hey, doing pretty good, actually. Not like that guy over there. I'm I'm doing pretty well lately. I'm not doing doing good. As if it was us rather than Christ's cleansing work. A a third indicator that we are not receiving Christ's love, that we have this this mindset or heart, is that we are trying really hard to fix or cleanse ourselves up from resting in the gospel that that's the missing part resting in the gospel now this is a tricky one to see given how deceitful our hearts are and because it could be mixed with good motives for obedience but this comes up in not seeing the relevance of the gospel or not being fed by it instead the person just wants a bunch of practical principles for being more righteous Now, Christ's commandments for moral living are good, must be declared, and must be followed. But this person wants principles in the law because he or she wants to fix their sin on their own and cleanse themselves. They have conviction over sin. They feel depressed over it. They may feel burdened about their sin, and they know that they need to change. But instead of first trusting in Christ's righteousness for a covering, instead of finding rest and peace in the fact that Christ's blood has atoned for sin, believing in that, receiving His cleansing love, they want to hear a bunch of practical principles so that they can get their act together so that they can rely on their own practical righteousness as a covering. And so the gospel doesn't feed or nurture them. It doesn't seem relevant. Or comforting to them in fact they may even get agitated because they want to be righteous in themselves in order to not feel so bad about being a sinner and believe that the solution is not in another's righteousness not in Christ cleansing and washing our feet but in their own work and so they get agitated look I want to be righteous and you just keep telling me the gospel stop telling me about Christ's work I know that already I need to fix myself. Would you just tell me what to do so that I can change and fix this? This person doesn't obey Christ out of gratitude, out of a thankful heart for what Christ has done for them. Rather, this person wants law so that he or she can do something about it. It's obeying apart from the gospel, apart from first resting in Christ. And if this person is honest with him or herself, they will find that they really do not have the lasting fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, etc. They usually have a lot of bitterness, resentment, ingratitude, anger, and discouragement from trying to do better but not being able to do so. Well, there was a, a pastor in my former town, Montana, that I ministered in. And he was telling me how he used to be an alcoholic. And he tried for years to change. He tried really hard to kill this sin. He knew the Bible's commands inside and out. He knew the commandment, don't get drunk. He tried a variety of methods and practical principles. He followed a 12-step program thinking that if he just had the right principles and steps, then he would finally be freed from the sin. But he began to feel desperate and depressed as he continued and tried harder and harder and yet continued to fail. But he said that he finally changed when he realized this, that Christ would change him. That Christ was able and willing to wash away his sin. That Christ would not only forgive his sin, but also cleanse him from all unrighteousness. That he would free him. That all he had to do was receive Christ's forgiving and cleansing love to rest on and receive him. And that is when he changed. And this is why Christ said in Matthew 11, Come to me all you who are who labor and are heavy laden. Yeah, you're working hard, you're trying, but it's not enough. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's only after resting in Christ receiving His cleansing love, putting our confidence in His forgiveness and His power to change us. And then that burden is easy and yoke is light. We must first find rest in Christ, believing on Him, receiving His ongoing cleansing love, and then that burden is easy and light. And we go... To Christ, not just once, but time and time again to find this rest and renew our faith. To receive this ongoing cleansing love from Christ. Look down at verses 9-10. through Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. So after hearing Christ's solemn warning, that if Christ does not wash him, then he has no share in him. Peter responds by saying, Well then wash more than just my feet. Now, this may sound again like a noble response, but it is still Peter wanting to be in charge rather than just simply trusting in his Lord and letting Christ what he's going to do. Peter still tries to instruct Christ, but Christ gently corrects Peter once again. And says that the one who has had a bath does not need to wash except for his feet. Now, if Peter is completely clean and just needs his feet washed, then why would Jesus say, unless I wash you, you have no share in me, and then proceed to only wash his feet? Well, for one thing, this is just an analogy And so you never want to push the analogy too far. An analogy does not correspond exactly with reality, hence it's an analogy. And so we don't want to push that too far. But secondly, the same pride that refuses to let Christ humbly serve in foot washing is the same pride that would refuse to let Christ cleanse from sin. And it is also the same pride that refuses to let Christ continue to cleanse from sin. No, 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 you shall never wash my feet. I got this. While Christ has completely cleansed us who believe once and for all by His one sacrifice, we need to continue to depend upon Him, live from faith to faith in relying on Him to cleanse us as we walk in this dirty world, as we continue to struggle with sin and stumble into it. Notice that it is Christ who washes away even our ongoing sins and not us. Christ must wash our feet. We must rely on Christ to restore us to our rightful heart and to empower us to continue to serve Him. This is why David, a man after God's own heart, who was a believer, asked God to cleanse him from his filthy acts that he had just committed. He wasn't coming to God for the first time, but rather, after he had sinned, he came to God and said, God, wash me thoroughly. He doesn't say, teach me how to wash myself. He relied on God to do it, trusting that he would according to his mercy and forgiveness. And so we need to continue to do this. And it doesn't change Anything with God, when we ask for Him to cleanse us, doesn't change anything with our status. Rather, it continues to change us and humble us. So this demonstrates to us the importance of receiving Christ's cleansing love. second biblical example showing us the importance of receiving Christ's cleansing love, and more br- briefly, is Judas. The end of verse 10, Jesus said, Not all of you are clean, that is, forgiven of your sins. And verse 11 gives us the reason that Christ said that. It says in verse 11, For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. And we know the rest of the story. It was Judas. It was Judas who would betray Jesus. Now it's not that Judas lost his salvation. But rather he manifested that he never had it to begin with, that he at no time had salvation. As A.W. Pink says, in Judas's case, it was not a matter of losing spiritual life, losing his salvation, but of manifesting the fact that he never had it. It was not a sheep of Christ becoming unclean, but a dog returning to its own vomit. We see from Scripture that there will be people in the likeness of Judas who look like a believer for a time, the disciples had no clue that Judas would do this, but it's eventually manifested. As Jesus says in Matthew 7, there's going to be many on that day, on Judgment Day, who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these amazing Christian things? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you, and send them to eternal hell. But notice in, in that, if you, pay a, if you pay close attention, Matthew 7, what are they appealing to? Their final desperate plea to Christ. Lord, Lord, did we not do? Do you know what their appeal should be? They were trusting in Christ. Lord, Lord, did you not do for me? And that is why we we trust in Christ's work on our behalf. That's what a believer does. Judas' false conversion becomes evident when he betrayed Jesus. But it's also manifest in the way he dealt with his guilt and shame. Uh, Do you remember what happened after he betrayed Christ? He actually felt conviction over sin he felt a great deal of guilt and shame for what he had done he even acknowledged his sin and confessed it before men he said explicitly i have sinned i have betrayed innocent blood but what did he do with that guilt and shame he handled it himself he didn't go to christ he took his own life rather than relying on the death of christ He decided to take matters into his own hand and kill himself. But if he would have gone to Christ, he would have received forgiveness. Betraying the Son of Man is not the impartable sin. Jesus says any sin committed against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But his unbelief is manifested in not looking to Christ for cleansing, but rather refusing Him and trying to deal with it on his own. So Judas also demonstrates us to us the importance of humbling ourselves, depending on Christ to deal with our sin, to receive his cleansing love and grace rather than remaining stubborn in our pride and trying to handle it ourselves. So, beloved, consider our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Why would he turn away anyone who comes to him? He has promised that the one who comes to him, he will in no way cast out. He is a merciful and sympathetic high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He saved Paul, the chief of sinners, for the purpose of revealing that he will show mercy to anyone who comes to him. Let's not moralize the chief of sinners. If we're all chief of sinners, then no one's the chief of sinners. You get how that works, right? Paul truly was the chief of sinners. And Paul is saying, if God would save me, the chief of sinners, then he will save any sinner who comes to him. And it is not the case that he is unable to save any. He put on human flesh, was born of a woman. He accomplished that work that the Father had given him to do, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw nearer to God through him. And those whom he has cleansed, those in here who believe, will he refuse to continue to wash our feet? If the teacher and master who initiated initiated this humble and humiliating act of service and strongly warned about not receiving it, He is the one urging His disciples to receive His cleansing love, then would He really turn any of us away after we, His beloved children, have fallen into sin? May God grant us the faith to always go to Christ for His forgiving love and cleansing power. The only fountain there is that washes away all in any sin. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that You would help us to come to Christ, to to have confidence in Him, even when we sin, even when we blow it big time, that we may come to Him and receive His cleansing love, that we may believe on Him and trust Him, that we may go to Him, that You may cause us to see our sin, so that we do flee to Him and run to Him, the only fountain that washes away sin. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.